This is the In Focus podcast from the Hindu. Hello and welcome to another edition of the In Focus podcast. I am your host G Sampath. The Uttarakhand Assembly has passed the state's uniform civil code. I did it did that last week and titled Uniform Civil Code of Uttarakhand 2024. This bill was one of the BJP's poll promises during the 2022 assembly election campaign. And although this bill's applicability is supposed to be uniform, the law exempts tribal populations and also the Hindu undivided family from its purview. So what's the legal history and background of this legislation? How does this law affect minority communities considering that it's supposed to be uniformly applicable to all of them? and what's the controversy around its provisions concerning live-in relationships we take a close look at this bill in this episode of in focus and we have with us professor sarasu esther thomas from the national law school of india university bangalore professor thomas thank you so much for taking time out for us in the midst of your travels welcome to in focus thank you so much i'm happy to be here great So uh, to start with I was just wondering if you can give us a quick overview of the background and history of the UCC uh, question in India you know I was really uh, like keen on on your comments on the fact that proponents of this bill like to say that the directive principles of the constitution uh, uh, promotes a uniform civil code whereas the law commission for instance has been less than convinced of you know how feasible it is and there is a lot of back and forth on this question so what are your uh, comments on this to begin with i think you've put those two things together quite well one is yes under the directive principles of uh, state policy in the constitution there is article 44 which says that uh, the state shall endeavor to uh, bring about a uniform civil code and uh, the law commission has in fact said that we don't really need a uniform civil code what we need is to bring in reforms in uh, personal laws so i think what the law commission was uh, trying to say is that we do need to keep in mind constitutional principles of fundamental rights of equality and uh, you know that is more important than bringing about a uniform civil code but just to give you a background the uniform civil code uh, debate if you want to call it that began with the constituent assembly debates and while this article in this form was introduced by the constituent assembly uh, we had you know people who had different views on whether the uniform civil code should come into force immediately or not one person i'd like to speak about is dr ambedkar who felt that yes a uniform civil code uh, should happen but he also uh, felt very clearly that this should not be an imposition and he said that you know it's not that the state should enforce it on all citizens just because they are citizens and he felt that the future parliament may make a provision um by first saying that it will be binding only to those who make a declaration and then you know take it forward like that so in a sense the way that the constituent assembly saw this directive principle like many other directive principles like on primary education it took a long time 
But the way that this directive principle, I think, has been seen by the Constituent Assembly is something that will be progressively realized, that it will be slowly realized over a period of time, incrementally and organically. It was never seen as something that would be an imposition. And I think this is clear from other parts of the Constitution. For instance, when you look at um, the seventh schedule, it has the union, the state and concurrent list. And you will find that a lot of subjects that should be in a uniform civil code, like marriage and divorce and minors of adoption, uh, succession and so on, all of them are in the concurrent list where both the union and state can make laws. We also see that there are specific provisions. You have mentioned tribal uh, laws. We also see that there are special provisions, for instance, for states in the Northeast, which, which protect their laws and their uh, rights to make their own laws in this area. So the constitution itself has uh, a scheme for diversity. It does not see a uniform civil code coming in uh, immediately. So that is what I want to say. The um, Another point that I feel is really important is keeping in mind what Dr. Ambedkar said, that, you know, uh, we already have a set of uniform laws. So in a sense, we have already a number of smaller uniform civil codes. I can give you a number of examples. The Special Marriage Act is a uniform civil code which allows all kinds of marriages, including intercommunity marriages. The Protection of Women from Domestic Violence Act is a uniform civil code which protects uh, women across all identities. The Adoption of Children under the Juvenile Justice Act is a uniform civil code which allows anyone to adopt a child. The Maintenance of Parents and Senior Citizens uh, Act is a uniform civil code which specifically takes uh, account of the needs of parents and senior citizens. So we have already a number of smaller uniform civil codes. We have been progressively realizing this right and incrementally and organically, uh, you know, bringing about change that better uh, recognizes rights of certain vulnerable groups and families. I also wanted to say that, of course, this has been uh, litigated in states and, you know, uh, in courts and courts have often said, um, you know, either that you cannot test personal laws on the constitution or made broad statements saying that, you know, we need a uniform uh, civil code. But as I said, this there has already been progress in a number of legislations. And I think that is what the Law Commission was also referring to. Right. I mean, the two broad takeaways from uh, from from what you have said so far, uh, Dr. Thomas. One, of course, uh, the Uniform Civil Code right from the time of the Constituent Assembly debates. It was not uh, meant to be uh, imposed, but more of an incremental uh, kind of a change, which is realized progressively over time. And we have already been doing that. And as you rightly pointed out, there are several individual smaller civil courts which are already in place and people are welcome to take it up and make use of them on a voluntary or, you know, on a need-based kind of a thing rather than having it imposed or top-down in the form of like an all-encompassing legislation which we have here in Uttarakhand. And coming to this Uttarakhand uh, bill, uh, in a recent piece in a newspaper, Dr. Thomas, you have described it as uh, neither uniform nor civil. So um, that's a very uh, succinct way of uh, of putting forward a particular view of it. Can you please elaborate what you mean by this? And also, secondly, 
if it's a civil code, does a civil legislation by definition not have to, as in, is it required not or is it expected not to criminalize violations of its provisions? To your first question, definitely, you know, as you also said in your introduction, it is not uniform as many groups are not covered. In fact, many areas are also not covered. There's nothing said about what happens to adoption or to custody or guardianship of uh, children. And uh, because the Hindu undivided family is also not covered, there is confusion about what happens. What are these rules that apply? Are daughters still co-partners in the state? Um, So you can't have an area where no rules apply at all. So does the uh, Hindu Succession Act apply to that? Does customary law apply, uh, you know, uh, with school of the Mithakshara apply? So all this, there is still a lot of uh, confusion, which is why I said it is not uniform. Uh, in a civil legislation, of course, you can have um, provisions which might criminalize violations. For instance, it may there may be a provision criminalizing child marriage in a child marriage uh, you know, if a family law deals with child marriage. But this claims to be a family law legislation. It deals with family relationships. Uh, And it creates completely new crimes in areas which have never been criminalized or which have been decriminalized over a period of time. There are acts that are completely legal today, which have been made illegal in this act. Uh, I mean, in this law. And uh, this is something that is uh, very uh, difficult to understand. And we see this particularly in provisions dealing with live-in relationships, which are not criminalized in the rest of the country. But here you find it being criminalized. So my point is not that uh, civil legislation uh, should not criminalize violations of itself. My point is that this claims to be a family code and it suddenly criminalizes areas which have never been criminalized or which have been decriminalized over a period of time. So in that sense, it's also creating a non-uniform criminal law. The presumption is that criminal law is largely uniform. Well, it's not. Uh, But nevertheless, uh, this creates a non-uniform criminal law as well by making certain uh, you know, things illegal. Right. I mean, that's, that's a very interesting way of putting it. I mean, uh, not only is it a uniform uh, civil code, is it a, it's a non-uniform criminal code, so to speak. I mean, uh, it's difficult to wrap one's head around uh, this aspect of this entire uh, debate. Now, coming to the actual provisions of this legislation, I was just wondering, uh, there's been a lot of discussion about, you know, uh, Muslim personal law and Hindu personal law and so on. So, in, the, in this context, so what would be the impact of this bill on minorities on when it comes to marriage and divorce? There would be a lot of impact on uh, this code on both uh, minorities and on Hindus, and I'll come to that. What would come immediately to people's minds might be the fact that uh, monogamy is now the norm. And so, of course, it would impact groups that might be uh, polygamous. There might also be the common knowledge that there would be loss of certain grounds of divorce. For instance, uh, 
for the formal divorce processes that are there in Muslim law, like khula that is used by the wife or uh, talaq that is used by uh, the husband. But in addition to this, there would also be uh, laws of Hindu customary divorces, which are protected under the Hindu Marriage Act, which will no longer be available under this law. And there are certain good um, you know, provisions which are there in other legislations, such as uh, Parsi law or uh, Christian law, which are completely you know, not even considered here. So Christian law, for instance, was the statute that was most recently overhauled. And it has a more nuanced definition of cruelty, for instance, than exists uh, in the older Hindu Marriage Act. And, you know, that could have been considered... Like, can you uh, explain what is this more nuanced uh, understanding of cruelty? Like, what is it? what do you mean by that? All right. So, um, for instance, in Hindu law, the ground of divorce would just be uh, cruelty. But Christian law requires something more. I'll just pull out the section and uh, read it. So it says, has treated the petitioner with such cruelty as to cause a reasonable apprehension that it would be harmful or injurious for the petitioner to live with the respondent. So this is uh, much more nuanced. So, um, you know, it looks at actual harm. Unlike the Hindu law, which just says cruelty and, you know, different judges read cruelty in different ways. So if, you know, a woman uh, refuses to wear the Mangal Sutra, forgets to wear the Mangal Sutra, it might be cruelty. So it makes it very easy to, um, you know, let a lot of uh, personal opinions of uh, judges, for instance, come into what is cruelty or not. So Christian law, when it was drafted, uh, when, or rather when it was amended, gave a more nuanced view of cruelty to ensure that, you know, it would not, divorce would not be just uh, done very easily based on, you know, a whim or a very uh, overbroad definition of cruelty. So that's what I meant. But of course, there are things that they could have taken from other statutes uh, too. And we see that there is lack of clarity on marriage and divorce procedures. Section 5 of the present uh, code that is proposed does not really talk about marriage ceremonies of Parsis or Christians. And uh, Christian law has an elaborate procedure. You have to give notice of the marriage. You can't have an immediate you know, marriage, which is possible in Hindu law. Uh, this notice is called bans. Christian law is recorded in writing so that there is automatic record of the marriage. This has nothing to do with registration, but that's the normal way that marriages are done. So all these procedures are not really mentioned. So there is lack of clarity about how one actually goes about getting married under this code for some communities. Right. So you're saying there is not enough clarity on how one gets married with all these provisions about marriage in this code being there. Correct. Correct how different communities would get married is not really mentioned in this code. But there is clarity on how Hindus can get married, right? Well, what it says is that marriage may be solemnized in accordance with the religious beliefs, practices, customary rites and ceremonies. And it mentions Saptapadi, Ashirvad, Nikah, Holy Union. I'm not sure what Holy Union is, Anandkaraj and so on. But uh, it's a little... It's not very 
clear because there are both in um, Christian law and Parsi law, there are clear ways in which you get married. Like in Christian law, that is automatically documented uh, documentation of marriage. And that is not dealt with here. So when it says people may get married according to their practices or customary rights, these are not customs. These are created by other statutes that are not uh, mentioned here. And it says... So if a Christian in uh, Uttarakhand were to get married according to this Christian uh, practice or whatever has been, uh, they have been following, uh, that would not be recognized under this code? I hope it will be recognized. But, you know, lack of clarity does create difficulties for those who want to get married. Right, right. Now, moving on to another uh, important uh, domain of this uh, law, Dr. Thomas, which is to do with succession and inheritance. Uh, Can you please give us a quick uh, sort of overview of what are the changes uh, it it brings in, uh, which should be felt not only by uh, the minorities, but also by Hindus, the majorities and so on? Well, as you pointed out, this is a very important area which has not received much attention. So if we examine the code, you know, it has sort of cobbled together provisions of different laws and they don't really uh, gel together or sit together uh, very well. So they have put some of Hindu Succession Act, they've put some of the Secular Indian Succession Act for wills uh, and sort of mixed it together to create a succession code. But the Hindu Succession Act has always been critiqued as a model that is not gender equitable. And I think uh, this is also something that I had um, you know, mentioned in the article that you uh, referred to. But Hindu law tends to give a lot of importance to agnatic relationships that is, you know, through a pure male line. And it looks at a woman as somebody who is, uh, you know, part of her husband's family for the purposes of marriage. So to give you an example, um, in Hindu law, the hus- some of the um, relatives of the, you know, the father get a better position than relatives of the mother. So for instance, uh, the uh, stepmother, that is the father's mother, has a better right to the property than the woman's own, uh, you know, uh, grandparents. So when you're looking at succession to a Hindu woman, it does not treat or, you know, or even that of a Hindu man. It does not treat the relatives from the mother's side and the father's side the same. Now, this is not true of other laws. Uh, This is certainly not true of uh, Parsi law and Christian law, which are both governed by the Indian Succession Act and which don't make a difference between your father's side of the family or your mother's side of the family. Both are very important. So, it or they uh, they both also don't recognize certain re- relatives like um, let me think of an example like the you know the stepmother or the step grandmother or the um, brothers you know 
Uh, Dr. Thomas, you mentioned, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, you mentioned earlier that, I mean, I mean, as you've explained, there is a serious issue of uh, uh, inequitable uh, gender uh, uh, treatment in Hindu personal law when with regard to succession and in- inheritance. And it's not the case uh, with the Parsi and the Christian law, which are governed by the Indian Succession Act. Uh, but uh, how how does uh, this this work with the Muslim personal law? I mean, there also there are uh, are there gender inequities uh, to be sort of dealt with through a, u- a uniform law. Uh, yes, there are inequities there too. In uh, Muslim law, the most common one that is usually mentioned is that the daughter gets half the property of a son. Uh, so definitely that would change and daughters and sons would get equal rights. But in other personal laws, they already had equal rights like Christian law and Parsi law. But Muslim law has certain interesting uh, features as well. For instance, it could be argued that in Muslim law, there is something called a bequeathable third that you can't will away more than one third of your property. So some of your property would definitely go to your heirs. Now, under the Indian Succession Act testamentary provisions, which are now included in this code, you can make a will giving all your property to anyone you please. So you can effectively leave out, you know, daughters from getting anything at all. So, uh, so you know, it's difficult to say which is better, you know, whether having a bequeathable third with a definite share of the property is better or having a law that gives uh, daughters equal shares in the property is better or, you know, allowing a person to bail away their complete property, leaving out, let us say, their wives or their daughters or someone else is uh, is all right. You know, it is a compromise compromise that is acceptable. I mean, it has been uh, it has been pointed out, for instance, that you know, um, allowing one person to will away uh, his or her entire property could result in, say, uh, widows or LGBTQ children to be sort of written out of their uh, their their rights to whatever property. I mean, uh, that's something which could be addressed by having this uh, bequeathable, non-bequeathable two thirds, so to speak. Sorry, I didn't get your question. No, uh, I meant that uh, when you when you have a situation where you cannot uh, bequeath uh, your entire property to whoever you please, I mean that could sort of uh, prevent a misuse of this uh, right by say writing away, writing out of your estate someone say a child whose uh, whose whose sexual orientation you may not really like, or a widow or whoever you know you may not agree with in your extended family. I mean that kind of. Uh, an eventuality might be sort of preempted by having, like, for instance, uh, this bequeathable uh, uh, element being restricted to one third is what I'm saying. The others would get their due in any course, in any way. Uh, yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, that is why the uh, bequeathable third is interesting. It's there only in Muslim law. It is not there in other uh, laws. And um, that's why it's important to consider that uh, I mean, th- that fact completely, that wills, when they are made, are often used to uh, disinherit and to perpetuate, you know, patrilineal uh, patri- tendencies of property passing on from father to sons and so on. Right. Now, let's come to the, the, the aspect of this uniform civil code that has sort of attracted the most amount of attention in the media, which is to do with its provisions on living relationships. 
So can you please uh, explain what exactly uh, does it mean when it says you have, I mean, couples have to compulsorily register within 29 days or 30 days. So where is this coming from? What happens if they don't register? How, do, how are live-in relationships defined? How is it different from marriage? Can you please take us through these uh, elements of this code? Well, live-in relationships is nothing like marriage. So let us see see what the present law on live-in relationships is. You know, it is not regulated at all. So uh, what what is a live-in relationship? It could be as simple as, uh, I mean, it would vary from the point that a couple is maybe dating or seeing each other or they decide to stay together for some time. And when they uh, start living together for some time, if they've lived for a long period of time, the wife has certain rights, for instance, protect. I mean, the woman has certain rights, for instance, protection under the uh, Domestic Violence Act and so on. But here what happens is that in if a couple is living together and the state feels that they have lived together for a month or more and have not registered, that itself becomes a crime. So you can't just stay together and preserve privacy where that is concerned. If you do not inform the state and you do not register, you could be punished for up to uh, three months of imprisonment. So, uh, so that's what I was referring to earlier, that it suddenly becomes a crime. Right. And the bill also provides for... Uh maintenance in case of desertion in a living relationship now uh, how, how is deserted desertion understood in this context i mean suppose a couple is in a living relationship and one of them decides to move on would that be counted as desertion it depends on what kind of a relationship that person is leaving is the person leaving a relationship that has been uh, registered or is the person leaving a relationship that is uh, not registered? Now, if a person is leaving a relationship that has not been registered, then uh, then in this law, because it is protecting only registered relationships, it is not sure what kind of protection the woman will receive in this law. But certainly under the domestic violence law, if there has been domestic violence, she would be protected because it recognizes live-in relationships, whether uh, it has been registered or not. But this law will protect only registered relationships from what it uh, seems like it on the on the face of it. And, you know, there is, of course, an ambiguity where that is concerned. The focus of the law seems to be on getting relationships registered more than anything else. Right. If a living couple has been living together for more than 30 days uh, and, and if the, the desertion, so to speak, quote-unquote, decision happens after, say, 45 days, uh, wouldn't that anyway uh, be counted as an unregistered living relationship and therefore, uh, I don't know, some kind of state intervention is mandated, one would presume, according to this code? Well, this would be considered, since it's not registered, we are not sure whether the woman would have any rights under this code. Okay. And if it's not registered, they would, they would then both of them would have to go to jail, right? Exactly. It would be uh, criminalized. So it is unlikely that they would say that it's not registered because it puts a burden on both of them to uh, register it. 
but it does not really uh, protect someone who has been there for you know one month and generally speaking even under the domestic violence act i'm not sure if a very short relationship for one month can be called would be a living relationship you know it is too soon maybe for a relationship to be considered to be a living relationship at all but you're very, you're absolutely right that there may not be any rights that uh, you know the woman can claim and if she does claim rights it may lead to uh, punishments for both of them right so i mean as you rightly pointed out professor thomas I mean, the, the the main uh, thrust of this provision seems to be uh, to register this relationship as and have a situation where you have certain rights for the woman emerging from that registration so to speak and this is interesting because i mean in 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 media reports on this provision uttarakhand government officials have said that they they that they decided to include this provision for compulsory registration of living couples in response to demands from elders uh, in the state uh, from parents and so on who are concerned about the abuse of women in such relationships Uh, domestic violence and whatever other kinds of abuse and it is meant to protect girls because once such a relationship is is registered uh, then there is a more fear quote unquote among uh, the men uh, in terms of you know how they uh, treat the woman in such a relationship which is not so uh, it's not the same as an unregistered living relationship do you think this so called justification of protecting girls or women in such relationships is a, it's a valid uh, justification for having this kind of a provision i don't think this pro- the provisions on living relationships uh you know really protect women and i don't know if that uh, i mean on what basis that justification is being made because if they wanted a law that would truly protect women they would have better provisions within the code on domestic violence for married women which Uh, we see absent that's not really there we would have a provision instead of criminalizing living relationships which criminalize marital rape which is not really there a uh, uh, you know a matrimonial remedy like restitution of conjugal rights which you know can allow a husband to you know file for the you know and ask for a direction for the wife to come back and stay with him uh, which has been critiqued by Uh, women's groups everywhere as being uh, absolutely violative of the rights of women that is something that is still there in the code so i am not very convinced about this argument that all these provisions are made to benefit women when you know all these important areas which already affect women which have been written about which have been talked about which have been documented have not been addressed at all and the fact that uh, live in couples women and live in couples face are the only people who face abuse is not right at all all women face abuse and i don't think that this uh, claim that uh, this this has come in for elders is something we must give much weightage from because this is not come from the women who want to be protected elders of course want to control who their uh, daughters and granddaughters marry or who their granddaughters and granddaughters uh, are with but i do not think they have that kind of a right it is for the women to uh, protect themselves 
I also am uncomfortable with the terms that have been used, you know, which have been bandied about that this is to protect girls. Girls are already protected. Minor girls are already protected under laws like FOXO. But this law, uh, live-in relationships or consensual relationships or marriage are those that are chosen by adult women from the age of 18 onwards. They are not girls anymore. They are adults making a choice. And I don't think that elders can, you know, um, force them to behave in a way that would restrict their rights. So these concerns of elders really seem to be to, uh, you know, controlling the freedom and sexuality of young adult women. If the law was truly about protecting women, it would have removed restitution of conjugal rights. It would have criminalized marital rape and it would have better provisions for domestic violence. Right. Uh, thank you, Professor Thomas. I mean, that really uh, uh, sort of uh, exposes the real nature of this uh, this provision of compulsory registration. I mean, this it's, it's a clear litmus test what you just mentioned, the provision of uh, marital rape not being there and restitution of conjugal rights making it once again. I think these are clear litmus tests in terms of what the intent is, whether it is really to protect or is it to control uh, the choices and sexuality of uh, women. And uh, moving on uh, to another aspect of this debate, I mean, this bill, I mean, uh, it sort of likens, even though it's not making it the same, it likens a living relationship to that of a marriage. So what are the implications of this bill, if if there are any implications for those uh, living couples who are in an LGBTQI relationship? All right. This code treats marriage and live-in relationships very differently. As you've seen from how marriages take place, marriages don't need to be registered. They would still be uh, a marriage. Uh, marriages don't need any kind of formal procedure or even you know, intimating the state that one is getting married. You can still follow your customary practices in getting married. Living relationships by their nature are very informal. People may choose to live in, they may choose to at some point of time, stop living in and moving on. Um, now, when you're looking at LGBTQI uh, relationships, this entire law is set in a gender binary. It only talks about men and women. It does not mention anyone else at all. So whether it's talking about a marriage or it is talking about a live-in relationship, it is talking about men and women only. So now we have actually this odd situation that if a couple, a man and a woman, decide to either live together or have a legal relationship, uh, that would be hit by the code. It would be criminal. But if you are looking at an, uh, a couple that is a sexuality minority, an LGBTQIA plus couple, we see that, you know, this is not dealt with at all. So there is no question of uh, a live-in relationship for them. There's no question of a marriage for them. So their freedom in living together in relationships is not really affected by this code. So actually, unlike other provisions of law, which are 
which protect couples who are in a gender binary of male female and do not protect lgbtqi community this law actually criminalizes uh, couples that are men and women in live in relationships but it does not deal with lgbtqi and this law which has come soon upon you know the uh, the expression of rights of lgbtqi could have definitely addressed some of their uh, these concerns but it hasn't if you look at the succession law provisions that is also set clearly within the lgbtqi uh, framework unlike let us say uh, you know the indian succession act provisions which don't talk about son or daughter which say child you know here they do talk about son and daughter only so when you're looking at succession law it is still not clear how you would classify let us say uh, a trans child and it is not clear whether uh, those who don't fall into a strict definition of a male son or a female daughter would be able to claim it is also not clear if a trans person uh, passes on or somebody who um uh identifies as gender non binary passes on um you know how their uh, property would uh, go you know who would be their uh, sons who would be their daughters um it is not clear if any of their it is definitely clear that their relationships that they have uh, their significant their partners uh, would not be recognized under this law so lgbtqia relationships are not recognized in the succession law at all and uh, it is still set in a very male female binary so difficulties that have been there in the older hindu law continue to be here and so this law is definitely discriminatory against uh, this community right i mean that's i mean it's it's really ironic what you pointed out that this lgbtqi uh, aspect i mean where uh, it is the the it's the heterosexual couples who are targeted uh, through criminalization but 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 the lgbtqi couples are not uh, targeted and therefore you know by basically leaving them alone or leaving them out of it they don't face the same uh, not likely to face the same brunt of the law as uh, as as heterosexual couples do which is the reverse of what uh, has been the case or what has been the norm so far uh, and one last question uh, professor thomas before we wrap up so would so taking a big picture view of this bill would it be accurate to describe it as an expansion in in, in its essence of the hindu personal law to other religious communities bar the tribal population or does it also need to be given credit for some genuinely progressive provisions such as for instance eliminating polygamy and ensuring equal inheritance uh for muslim women which which are which are both uh, pluses for them how would you sort of give a big picture uh, perspective on this well of course the points that you uh, mentioned regarding muslim women i think we have discussed in an earlier uh, question and uh, certainly there are uh, some good provisions like it stand on illegitimacy it is removed the notion of illegitimacy so all children are legitimate uh but your statement that it has expanded hindu personal law to other religious communities is quite true it has uh it has also you know ex- we and uh you know expanded it to communities which 
may not be necessarily religious, like an atheist, for instance, would still be governed by this law. And we see that when we look at Hindu law earlier, it was actually a catch-all law. You know, its term or being called Hindu law is probably unfortunate. So it applied not just to Hindus, but it also applied to Buddhists, to Sikhs, to Jains. And it applied to anyone who was not a Muslim, a Christian, a Parsi, a Jew or governed by tribal law. So this, um, you know, expansion of Hindu law may not always be um, a good thing because we have missed out good provisions from other laws. Like uh, I think the way that Parsi law protects widows is very good. Uh, The way that Christian law treats, um, you know, relatives from both sides agnates and cognates equally is uh, very good. And those good points which could have been taken from other personal laws have not been taken. So it seems to be an expansion of Hindu personal law, uh, but without giving the benefits that Hindu personal law has, such as, you know, the the Hindu undivided family, uh, you know, format, both as in family property, as well as a business institution. Uh, to other groups as well. Right. Now, uh, one final question before I let you go. This uh, bill, I mean, there have been so many concerns which have been raised, which we discussed. I mean, assuming some sections or some communities or their representatives who are not happy with the provisions of this bill, they they challenge it in court. Uh, would, would it withstand, uh, do you think, scrutiny in terms of its constitutionality? I mean, there are there are sort of many uh, arguments being made that invades uh, privacy, for instance, with its living relationship uh, clauses, uh, which is uh, which is which is a violation of a fundamental right and so on. So, do you think it's 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 robust in terms of whether it's constitutional or not, or it's, it's is it liable to be struck down as unconstitutional if it is if it is to face such a challenge? In going forward, the provisions on living relationships definitely are completely violative of the constitution for many reasons. One is that, you know, it would fall within what the Menika Gandhi, one of the judges observed in the Menika Gandhi case, that it's arbitrary, freakish, or bizarre because it provides such a cumbersome uh, procedure and such a criminalized procedure for an informal relationship, which it does not even for a formal relationship like marriage. So certainly the procedures and uh, for a living relationship are completely unconstitutional. Uh, it is also, as I said, violative of rights of the freedom to marry of uh, or the freedom of, uh, you know, being in a relationship of young adults, which has been protected by the law. Of course, when it's not consensual, then you have a provision like rape law. If it is underage, you have provisions like uh, the POXO, the Protection of Children from Sexual Offences Act. But where consenting adults are concerned, they have a right. And the Supreme Court has, in cases like the Navtej Singh Johar, upheld rights of consenting adults to be in relationship even for the LGBTQIA plus community. So, you know, this right has been impacted for adult men and women through provisions dealing with living relationship. And certainly it is 
uh, it can be struck down. It is violative of couples' rights to equality, to privacy, to autonomy, to personal liberty, complete violations of Article uh, 14, 21, etc. And so I feel that if it is challenged, it should be liable to be struck down. Right. I mean, thank you so much, uh, Professor Thomas. I mean, definitely uh, on questions of, as you said, uh, equality, privacy, autonomy and personal liberty, there are a lot of uh, problems with this uh, legislation. And in the days to come, hopefully there will be a greater scrutiny of it and uh, and the right kind of actions will be taken. Thank you so much once again for uh, sharing your observations and insights on this uh, bill. Absolute pleasure talking to you. Thank you. Thank you so much for this opportunity. In Focus will be back soon with analysis of the biggest news issues. In the meantime, you can find our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher and other platforms. Just search for In Focus by The Hindu. We'll see you soon.